You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. That's right, folks. We are back with a book club. It's been quite some time, and we got a pretty spectacular book to talk about this time. We are going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Ringworld by Larry Nevin. It is an amazing tale of fantasy of a possible future and possible worlds beyond imagination. It should be a lot of fun to talk about. And, you know, this man I'm going to be talking to as my co-host tonight is a man who doesn't have two eye stalks coming out of his head. It is a man who doesn't look like a tiger. It is a man beyond legend. He probably is, you know, going to be living all those years into the future. Let's say hey to Mr. Mike Gordon. Howdy. Wow. If people haven't read the book, they're not going to get those references whatsoever. But that's okay. Nope. Exactly. (laughs) They're going to be like, huh? What are you talking about there, Mike? So, no, I have no idea. It'll be interesting to see what, you know, what people's reaction is to this book. And I know you and I, this is our first time reading it. Yeah, this is our first time, and uh, this is one thing that um, uh, early on this year I had seen that it was the 50th anniversary of Ring World in some, I don't know, some headline or something online, something somewhere. And uh, I thought, you know what, this would be a good time to explore this. Um, Ring World, for those people who don't know, is a groundbreaking science fiction book that a award, total, huge award, like won all the awards in 1970. Um, and it's very, very inspirational. Um, and you see its influence even today. Like, like anybody out there who plays Halo, you can thank Larry Niven for that. Oh, God. Tons of games, tons of other novels, tons of TV even. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, he's totally up there. And, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun to see the similarities and where it came out to. and. There are sequels and prequels and tales based off all these characters that we meet in these stories. It's actually pretty awesome to see. So I'm going to be, it's going to be fun to talk about. And we definitely would love to hear from you guys at home. Please write us at feedback at earthstation1.com. Let us know what you guys thought about Ringworld. What did you guys think about us bringing the book club back? You know, a lot of people have been asking, hey, I used to like it when you guys talked about books and such, not just old movies. So it was always a good thing for us to do to, to, you know, vary what we're talking about on the podcast. We also want to hear about what you guys would love to, for us to talk about other topics and such. We're always open. We definitely would love to hear from you guys. And while I'm thinking about you guys, please, of course, subscribe to our show up on Apple podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, even Amazon. We are up on all of those. So it's pretty cool. You definitely could find Earth Station One on all your favorite media players. We definitely would love you and thank you for it. Uh, also, we've got a great Facebook group up on under the ESO network, or there is an Earth Station One page where we post all our new shows, or we have a great website, earthstation1.com. 
as if you want to catch an older episode, we are up there and you can hear even older episodes of the book club. It's pretty awesome where we could talk all about that kind of stuff. So definitely find us. Also, if you want to hear exclusive material by the ESO network, you could uh, subscribe to the ESO Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. You can actually hear exclusive material. We actually just put up a nice little thing by our friends over at Thunder Talk. They have a nice little exclusive episode for the ESO patrons. And all you have to do is go over to patreon.com slash ESO network. And you can get our show 48 hours before it goes live out to the rest of the world. We also have other shows like Earth Station Who and the Dragon Con Report. And there's going to be more shows doing exclusive previews of their shows too starting soon so you know it's gonna be a lot of fun and you could definitely you know help support the network that way and we all could use these help these days so it's pretty awesome a big shout out to our friends over at tofosi optics that's right folks tofosi is back and they are here to talk all about get ready for this sunglasses sports glasses gamer glasses, which are also called, you know, blue light glasses. So you could look at monitors and TVs and stuff and not get eye strain because a lot of us are stuck at home nowadays. And you know what? We're staring at our TVs more, our computer monitors. You could, with blue light glasses, you can actually help cut back on an eye strain. And, you know, that's pretty cool. And they come in all different kinds of styles. So you can custom make your own kind of glasses through tofosioptics.com. And if it's a little bit of a bonus, you get 10% off if you put ESO Network in the coupon code. Not too bad. Tofosioptics.com. Check them out, folks. And now we're here with actor, writer, producer, all around man around town. Let's welcome <laughs> Billy Van Zandt to the show. Welcome, Billy. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Mike. Hello, Mike. Howdy. Welcome to the station. A pleasure. Uh, it's, it's great honor to have you here. Um, you know, certainly looking at, um, you know, doing the research, looking at your resume and all that kind of stuff. Just massively impressed by uh, your career uh, thus far, the, the writing career, especially, um, you know, starting with the, 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 it says here that you've written over 25 plays theatrical plays is that well that's a is that some sort of that has to be some sort of record right well it doesn't mean they're all good but (laughs) (laughs) But were they all produced they were all produced and there you go they're all published with samuel french and they're done all over the world i've been very lucky yeah that's uh i mean that's got to be pretty uh, amazing what what draws you to i imagine you're still drawn to it still to live theater Oh, it's all, it's all I ever wanted to do. I loved doing When I was a little kid, I was doing shows in the backyard for the neighbors and all that kind of stuff. And uh, just, there, you can't beat the immediacy of working with an audience. And uh, I feel absolutely at home there. And uh, in fact, when I started working in television, uh, I had a director at one point say, uh, Billy, you're not playing to the back row of the balcony. You're playing to a camera. Like, oh, Okay. <laughs> So uh, you have to adjust a little bit, you know. <laughs> the uh, and and it seems like the television that you've worked on, mainly like uh, from Newhart to Martin to uh, the Hewleys, um, has been more sitcom based, almost theatrical, right? Is that absolutely yes, drawn to- yes. Yeah. Uh, originally, I was I was attracted to uh, I Love Lucy and and that kind of comedy. The fact that they did it with a live audience, their mm-hmm. writers taught me how to write a script. 
And uh, Lucille Ball taught me timing, and uh, I, I studied the crap out of that show. And I mean, back in New Jersey, where I'm from, it was on, you know, four or five times a day out of New York, and I would watch it four or five times a day. And uh, so I learned from that, but I always, I wanted to work with a live audience. I, I actually thought I'd spend my entire career on Broadway, and then suddenly TV and film popped in. I was like, oh, I guess I'll do that too. Did you, did you ever get a chance to meet Lucille Ball? Yes. Yes. Wow, that must have uh, been amazing. It was uh, it was fantastic because, you know, you're afraid to meet your idols for fear they're going to be horrible human beings. She was exactly what I wanted her to be. A friend of mine who had done Jaws 2 with me was cast as her daughter on her final TV series. And I went I immediately jumped on a plane as soon as I found out. And I went out there to watch her work and eventually meet her. And in my mind to work with her, which I actually ended up doing. And um it was it was a masterclass in in comedy to watch her work. It was it was just it was everything I wanted it to be. It was great. Yeah, yeah. She is she is uh, the best, right? Uh, yeah. I think, I think everything, and not just not just women's comedy, but everything kind of American comedy stems from from her and that show, right? Absolutely, as well as the you know little show called Star Trek, which she was responsible <laughs> for getting on the air. You Absolutely, know, she had her hand in a lot of stuff. You know, say when I first met her. Uh, you know, she, I, I was, my mouth hit the floor while I was watching her rehearse and, and, and her assistant said, uh, you know, what, what, what's the matter? And I said, I, I, I didn't know she worked with cue cards. And he said, oh yeah, yeah. So I, I cornered her and I said, how long have you been working with cue cards? She got very defensive. Mm-hmm. She said, I, I was producing 17 shows at a time. When did I have time to learn lines? And I thought, well, I, I guess that's true. You're not producing 17 shows now, so why don't you know your lines? <laughs> but, uh, but, Old habits uh, die hard, right? I guess so. I guess so. No, that's awesome because you do have a tie into Star Trek, also. You know, because yeah. you were yeah. you were an alien in one. I was in the first movie uh, with Robert Wise, and uh, that was a that was a, again, and that was a learning experience watching him work. Um, he he would shoot exactly how he wanted the movie edited it was very interesting to watch and you know if he would do, he would do a master take just for as much as he wanted it then he would come in and just do the lines he wanted in close-up and i realized after a while i was like you can't re-edit his film smart guy <laughs> you know? well, well that's what happens when because yeah, he started out as an editor Citizen so, Kane so, and, so, and all yeah, those. Yeah. so he yeah so he knew exactly what would get end up on the floor right yeah but he was he was good it was, it was really i was it was such an honor working with him it was an honor working with all the guys on that i uh, you know i'd been a fan of the show uh but i wasn't a fanatic fan of the show i was i was i was worried when i got the job and i went to the set for the first time and i was on the bridge with everybody and i said to, to george uh i said i'm a I want to do this right because I know I know the Trekkies know every inch of this ship and everything. So I said, when I'm pressing these, these key this keyboard and I'm looking at the screen, where am I supposed to be hitting? And he just said, "Oh, I don't know. I just move my fingers up and down." I said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> 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 but uh, I had I really had a ball with those guys, uh, very much so with William Shatner. I really uh, he I always hear people give him a bum rap. I could not have liked the guy more. Um, he was so easygoing. I don't know what went on in the past prior to that, you know, but, uh, but on that set, he was fantastic. And uh, I, I tell this story because it, it summed him up to me. My, uh, my, because I had all this weird makeup on and it was the first Star Trek and they wanted to be as secretive as they possibly could about it. They didn't want me to leave my dressing room or the soundstage at all. 
They didn't want anybody getting a picture of me. So I, I was trapped in my dressing room for, a, for the entire shoot. And um, I had my girlfriend come and, and she, she hid out in the, in the dressing room with me. And I thought, I'm going to sneak you on the set so you can watch some of this. So I got her on the set and I, I hit her in the back behind some cables and some you know, boxes and stuff. And uh, we started shooting a scene and uh, Mr. Shatner stopped the camera and said, wait a minute, stop. There's somebody back there. And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to get fired. And he went, you, come here. And, and uh, Jane came forward and he said, you can't see from back there. Somebody get her a chair. And they put her right next to the camera. And it was a great afternoon. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a, that must have been, yeah, because that first movie, I mean, that was the first time Star Trek came back. We didn't know if right. we were right. ever going to get Star Trek again. Right. And uh, I think, you know, there was a lot of pressure on that movie. Yeah, and I when I auditioned for Mr. Wise, uh, I had just come. I think I had just come off of Jaws too. That was my first movie, mm-hmm. and um, and he told me, and it turned out to never happen. But this is what he told me. He said, uh, "Leonard Nimoy may not come to work. He hasn't finalized his contract, so you know your role may get bigger." It's like, oh, I may be the new Spock. Okay. And of course, the very next day, Leonard Nimoy showed up for work, and I had <laughs> next to nothing to do. So, uh, but uh, but it was funny. Uh, I would get there very early in the in the morning from the makeup because they had this big dome head, and I had the eyes and a wig. And how all long did that take? About an hour and a half. And okay. uh, Leonard would be at the next chair, and the two of us would be getting our stuff on at the same time. But he never talked to me. He had a script, whatever the script was in his hand, and he was scribble, just scribble through the entire makeup uh, session. And then finally, about an hour into it, uh, William Shatner would come to work. And uh, Leonard would say, okay, Bill, in this scene, instead of you saying this, you're going to say this. And then I'm going to do this, and then you're going to say this, and I'm going to do this. And, that's, and Shatner would just go... Sure, whatever you want. That was that was how they that was how they worked. So that was kind of fun. Two different layers of acting, right there. Exactly, exactly. But I I, I so liked working with everybody on there. Um, Nichelle was was wonderful. Walter, uh, I didn't get to work with uh, Scotty. I didn't get to work with um, uh, James Doohan. That's but um, everybody, I love I loved them all. And 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 DeForest Kelly was a riot. His mm. he was I guess his father had been a Baptist pastor, something like that. And uh, Ralph Byers, who was another actor on the bridge uh, with me, uh, we were both raised American Baptist. And uh, I know that shocks people to hear now, but uh, that's how I was raised. And um, one day the forest just broke into a, some, some Baptist hymn. And then Ralph and I just immediately joined in, and the three of us sang a couple of <laughs> Baptist hymns for the day. It's kind of kind of an interesting day. I've uh, you know Shatner and Nimoy always got you know the covered in the press, but I've always uh, thought that Leonard uh, that uh, sorry DeForest was the uh, the heart of that of that cast. And funny, I thought he was funny as hell too. Mm-hmm. Just really funny. Um, I'm always looking for the comedy stuff, you know. And sure. uh, and the funny thing because of. Uh, the secrecy of that thing. I snuck a picture of myself in the dressing room, which I, you know, I sent to my brother and my sister. And uh, for years, my brother on his piano kept a picture of me as this weird alien with the bump head and the thing. And just so people could say, you know, they'd look at this deformed thing sitting on his piano and go, who's, who's that? And he said, Oh, that's my brother. No explanation whatsoever. <laughs> oh, that's my brother. So, <laughs> 
and 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 knowing your brother, they they probably thought, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Makes perfect sense. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, you mentioned um Lucille Ball before, and and I want to, I I can't like looking at your credits. Uh, another very very inspirational uh, comedian, Bob Newhart. You got mm. to work on that show. Tell me what that was like, because that show was amazingly funny. That thank you. Yeah, that was good. That was that. That show spoiled me for everything that came afterwards. It was my first. My, it was it, it was my first TV sitcom to, as a writer, and um, it, it showed me how everything should be done. And I've worked on plenty of shows since then where things are not done that way. Um, he was he insisted on one take. You did it like a play. One take, you blow a line, you make it up, and keep going like a like wow. a play. He didn't want to use a laugh track. He said, people at home aren't stupid. If it's not funny, they're not going to laugh just because you shoved a laugh in there. Um, he was very giving to the other actors. Uh, I would say almost weekly he would come to us and say, you know, it'd be funnier if Peter says this instead of me or you know, have Julia do this because I think she'd be better. And I, I asked him at one point, why do you keep doing that? And he said, as if you're smart, everybody around you is fantastic. And then, you know, you get the credit for it. Mm-hmm. And and I've worked on plenty of other shows where, you know, it's all about me. It's all about me. You know? uh, but he wasn't like that at all. And he uh, was, he also had a standing dinner reservation at nine o'clock on Friday nights. And we shot the show at seven o'clock on Friday nights and Mr. Newhart better make his reservation. So we whipped through those shows and, uh, you know, the next show I worked on was with Jamie Lee Curtis and Richard Lewis, and we stayed there till three in the morning every night shooting things because wow. they, they wanted to do four or five takes of every scene. And I said to the producer, why do you do four or five takes of every scene? And he said, well, they're, they're better on the fourth and fifth take. And I said, well, isn't that, well, then why, why give them four and five takes? Wouldn't they be better if they only had one and knew they had to perform on the one? And they didn't do it that way. And a lot of shows don't. But every show that I've worked on of, of my own, that's the way I do it. One take mm-hmm. and move on. No, I think it's pretty amazing because that's why that makes sense. That's that's why, uh, especially on most of Newhart Bob's shows, he, he surrounds himself yeah. with an amazing cast. Yeah, and uh, I'm still friends with Julia Duffy and uh, and Peter and uh, and Tom Poston to, to be able to write for him because it was my first TV show, you know. And I, even though I'd sort of been in the business, I was still awestruck by everybody I came in contact with on that show. Um, every guest star we had, I got to write for Don Rickles. Uh, Johnny Carson came on the show where, you know, all these different people. And it was like, I was a kid in a candy store. And, um, and they, they, uh, we had turned the show with, it, you know, that show had started as a, uh, uh, a bed and breakfast comedy. A guy opens a bed and breakfast and it was a very quaint little show in the first season. And then suddenly it got a little wilder and a little wilder. And by the time I came on in season seven, we were doing green acres. It was just insane, you know, <laughs> and uh, we had so much fun because Larry Darrell and Darrell are suddenly playing grand pianos and the fountains shooting off. And, and it was just great. And um, and I even got uh, the producers to bring on Alvie Moore, who played Mr. Hank Kimball on Green Acres, playing basically Hank Kimball on Green Acres in our show. It was it was really fun. I had such a ball doing that show. And uh He's just a sweet guy. And and Don Rickles, who was my other favorite guy to work for, uh, the, you can see why the two of them were friends. They were just the sweetest two people you ever met. Now, um, that one's got a very, very famous finale. Did you have a, a part in that? Well, the I, I was uh, that was I was there season seven. That was done season eight. But we had already 
design what that was going to be. Okay. So uh, wow, you guys knew that far in advance. I, they knew before I even came to work. Uh, what I was told, everybody has taken credit for that thing. And now Mark <laughs> Egan and Mark Solomon wrote the show. They, they wrote that episode. But okay. um, Julia Duffy confirmed this with me because I, I said, everybody takes credit for this. She says, I was standing right there when Bob's wife, Ginny, thought of it. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. You know, so uh, Ginny, you know, Ginny Newhart uh, created that ending. The, the part that people don't know, which is it was painful. It was painful to see it. Uh, we, we, we blocked off the, uh, the set for when Suzanne Plachette is in the bed with Bob Newhart. And the scene prior, he had been hit in the head with a golf ball. And everybody, we threw the audience off, even though we weren't on the show anymore. We sort of started a rumor in the audience for the producers that um, Bob was going to die and go to heaven. And George Burns was going to be a big surprise guest playing God. And everybody was, so we spread that rumor and everybody was waiting for that. They pulled those flats in front of the set and people just saw the set for the, for the original Bob Newhart show. And there must've been 10 minutes of applause. They had to cut it all out. (laughs) They knew exactly what it was, and it was so much fun to see. But what people don't know is after that scene, there was another scene of Bob waking up in bed with Mary Fran, having imagined that. And we, as they shot it, we're in the audience going, oh, this is just pitiful. They can't, they can't, why are they shooting this? You know, and uh, uh, they, uh, they only did one take of that too. <laughs> they got rid of that fast. A dream within a dream. Exactly. <laughs> Very cool. Um, Mike, did, I'm sorry, did you have a, a question? No, I was going to uh, basically also talk, want to talk to Billy about some of the other TV shows that he helped create because yeah, I know yeah. you did, you know, you created quite a few. You worked with the Wayne's, Wayne's Brothers. You've yeah. also worked, you know, Suddenly Susan and you actually got to work with Rickles and Richard Lewis again. Richard called us. He had had, he had a, we did anything but love for him. And then a couple of years later, I think we had just come off of, uh, yeah, we were doing Martin at the time. And uh, Richard called us and said, I have a deal at uh, 20th Century Fox to do a show with Don Rickles as my father. Do you want to write it? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and um, so we met with them. We created that show. And um, boy, was that fun. Rickle, and I had written for Rickles on, uh, on the Newhart show because he was a guest spot. And I did a guest spot for us. And, uh, you know, growing up, that was the, the big thing. If he was on The Tonight Show, my whole family just gathered around the TV mm-hmm. and that was yeah. the funniest thing you ever saw in your life. Don was fantastic to work with the sweetest guy in the world. The only thing he had said to us was don't do to me what they did on CPO Sharky, which was his previous show. And I said, what did they do? And he said, they would say Don enters and then I have to make up my own lines. I don't want to do that. And so we wrote everything out for him. And the weird thing on that show is it came at the, it came at the wrong time is what it did. It came right at the beginning of the height of political correctness. And Don's whole act is politically incorrect. So oh, we, we we were doing a show where the network was trying to turn it into something else. You know, mm-hmm. can you tone him down, make him? No, I want to do a Don Rickles show. I'm going to show off Don Rickles. So we uh, we went back and forth uh, with the network on that. And unfortunately, we were just at the wrong time. But man, was it funny. Just funny. When you work in a writer's room, you usually burn off steam making up jokes you know can't possibly go in the script just to get it out of the way. You insult right. the actors, you know, do all this other stuff. 
And on that show, anytime somebody would say something horrible, I'd go, put that one in, put that one in, put that one in. And uh, so the critics hated us. I have a literally, I think it's literally two inches thick reviews of that hated our show. And uh, I almost, I almost put them in my book too. Jane talked me out of it. She said, no, don't do that. I said, they're funny. You know, the <laughs> LA times said we should be beaten with wire hangers, you know, those kind of things. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was wow. Was, yeah. It because, <laughs> was it because of the political correctness starting up yeah. that they didn't like you guys? Cause yes. I remember watching the show and it was great. I enjoyed it. It was funny. Our, our, the audience, the, the ratings were fantastic. And uh, the the viewer the viewership kept going up, but uh, enough people didn't care for the fact that he was you know doing Mexican jokes, black jokes, whatever Do, jokes, doing you know? the stuff that he'd been doing his whole career. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> when we when we first uh, debuted the show at the with the critics out in Pasadena, they do that every year where you sit there and mm-hmm. they introduce the show and you you know get questions from the audience. I was sitting there really excited because, oh, my father's going to be so proud. I'm standing here with Don Rickles and we're going to do this great thing. And the first question, first question was, what gives you the right to do this kind of trash on television? Whoa. And I was like, uh, uh-oh. And it went downhill from there to the point where I actually yelled at some guy. I said, there are plenty of other shows on TV. You don't have to watch ours. <laughs> And that became the uh, front page quote in the USA Today the next day. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. What, what gives you more pressure, you know, having to create a new TV show or, you know, actually a new play, which, you know, and also which gives you more oh, satisfaction? The, uh, the play gives you much more satisfaction because there's nobody telling you, you can't do this. You can't do that. You do whatever you want. And, uh, and on television, you are jumping through so many hoops to just get the show on the air. Um, you, you, it, it's a, it's a very delicate tap dance you have to do with the studio who's paying for the show and the network who's buying the show. You can't just, unless you become, you know, Chuck Lorre or Bruce Helford or somebody where they don't tell you what to do anymore. The, basically the blank check. <laughs> yeah. And most of those kind of most of the shows that have been big hits, even I Love Lucy, they create they produced their own pilot. Nobody told them what to do. Seinfeld was done for late night. Nobody really was expecting much of it. Those kind of shows, then they become hits, and now you can't give them any notes. Smart, you know. <laughs> uh, but if you go through the normal channels, you get so many notes. And I I often say I don't care how bad a television show is. If it's on the air, I just think, good for you, whoever created it. I know what you had to go through to get it there. You may have had a brilliant show when you started out, but you, yeah, you still got it on the air. Uh, you know, Sopranos, another one. You know, they didn't – that got turned down by everybody. So you went to HBO. You know, mm-hmm. that could have been a whole different show. Yeah. Could have been a whole new, different HBO if, it had, yeah. <laughs> if they hadn't had Sopranos. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that, yeah. that carried them for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, when I first went into TV, um, the very first job we got was writing a backup script for a Louis Anderson uh, sitcom. He wasn't going to be in it. It was about his family. And the uh, to give you some idea how things go through the ringer, his father, if I have the story right, if I remember it right, his father was a big band musician, traveled all over the country. And the mother was stuck at home with 10 or 12 kids. And Louis was one of them. 
by the time this this show got on the air, got got filmed for their pilot, the father was no longer a big band singer, a big band musician. He he was in construction and lived at home, and there were two kids. It's like, well, oh, wow. why did you make this show? Why did you even make this show? And the producer of that was a, a playwright named Sam Bobrick, and I directed actually uh, one or two of his shows, Murder at the Howard Johnsons and a bunch of others. He sat me down the very first day, and he said, uh, you're a playwright, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, let me tell you how television works. In the theater, you are the top of the pyramid, and everybody works to please the playwright. Welcome to television. You are a blueprint and everybody's going to do whatever they want with your material. <laughs> and as soon as you accept that, you'll be fine. It took me two, three years to accept that. Well, as soon as I got the job on Newhart, I remember the very first script, somebody, one of the characters entered in one of our scripts and said, hello, something or hi. I don't can't remember now. And the producers, you know, you go through the script with all the writers in the room. So the producers went, oh, we're going to change uh, hello to hi. Why? Why? <laughs> well, no, it's funnier. This It's like, eh, it's funnier. You know, it's just different. <laughs> so what you, and, it, and so it took me two, three years to learn to just, you know, bite my tongue and it's not your show. And you, your job is to write like the producer, not to be your own star, basically, you know. And when you get your own show, then you do what you want. And then you have a whole writing staff of people going, oh, my stuff's better. Why isn't he using it? You know? So, <laughs> so it's, all, it all, it's all relative, I guess. The joy Absolutely. of the writer's room. <laughs> I love the writer's room. There's nothing funnier, funner, more fun. I, I have words in my life. When there's nothing more fun than sitting in a writer's room with, with doing, working on a comedy. It's just the greatest way to make a living. Is it, is it really, does it live up to the, the, you know, speaking of another classic sitcom, is it, does it live up to like the Dick Van Dyke show? Uh, it depends. <laughs> well, yeah. If, if you, if you have the right people, it, it all depends on the set. You know, if you have Bob Newhart in charge of your show, that's one show. If you have somebody else who you know, I talk about them in my book, um, you, uh, Every day it's like you have a knot in your stomach because, you know, what's, what's he going to find wrong with it today, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, on, on Martin, Martin would come into the writer's room and literally tell us he would kill us if we didn't make the script funnier. That was a fun way to go to work. <laughs> no pressure? <laughs> no. And, he, and I think he meant it because he, he would grab one of his friends who was on the writing staff. He'd grab him by the throat and take him out in the hall and shove him up against the wall. It's better be funnier tomorrow. Wow. Well, yeah. wow. But, but, and I, and I always, I, I always have to stand up for him when I trash him. Uh, when you work with a stand-up comedian, which we've done mostly all of our shows have been with stand-up comedians. Uh, your job is to take someone who's been their own writer, their own producer, their own director for God knows how many years. And it's your job to take what works for a sitcom and, and channel that and ignore the rest. That's the part where you have a, a trust factor you have to work through with these comedians. Uh, luckily, when I when you work with somebody that's so established like Rickles, you know anybody could have written for him if you you were talented enough, you know, because you get him, you got the brand, you get the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But you get a brand new comedian, and uh, you know they think they're funny, and you you think, yeah, you're funny in a sitcom, you're funny on stage in a in a in a nightclub, but you got a lot of other factors here, you know. And the best, uh, the smartest thing to do with a stand-up is to surround them with very good stage actors and brings their 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 talent 
it rises to the actors around them and it teaches them how to perform really. Um, I know when we, we worked on the, uh, one of the pilots, I think for uh, everyone loves Raymond and he was quite frankly, he was terrible in, in the first couple episodes, mm-hmm. but he had real strong actors around him and he had a coach, uh, uh, Richard Marion, who taught him how to perform. And he's now he's fantastic. Yeah. A movie star. Even. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Billy, you mentioned, I think you, you got a book. Is that right? <laughs> I, I do. Oh, you knew, you knew, did you? Yes. Uh, yes. It's called Get in the Car, Jane, Adventures <laughs> in the TV Wasteland. And it is a, uh, it's a memoir of all the TV shows, not all of them, but most of the TV shows Jane and I worked on for the last 100 years. And uh, every chapter is a different show. And I talk about the behind the scenes stuff and the gossipy stuff and how you put that show together. And it's, and uh, it's, it, uh, I often say it's, you know, it's filled with all the, all the funny stories I would tell at dinner parties, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you don't have to, you know, you can read one chapter and come back to it three weeks later and read a different chapter. They don't, they don't all go, go together. Um, but it came out really well. And for a second and a half, I was number one on Amazon, which was cool. Nice. Um, it's only a cool. second and a half, but I'll take it. <laughs> and uh, and it's doing it's doing really well. I'm uh, I'm really having uh, fun uh, fun with this thing. Absolutely. So it is available on Amazon and most other Amazon, platforms? Barnes and Noble, and uh, from our website too. You can get it from from there too. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have a link to your website as Great. well as um, you know uh, the Amazon link as well. Um, anything else that uh, you want to promote while you're here? Well, let me think. Um, well, we're not back into it yet because the world is shut down, but we were touring the country for the last two years uh, with a musical uh, a comedy thing uh, called the Boomer Boys Musical. It's uh, four guys of a certain age talking and making fun of the, uh, the, the changes men go through when you hit a certain age. And ah. a lot of women's groups love this thing. They come and laugh at their husbands. <laughs> and uh, and so when the world comes back to whatever the world's coming back to, we'll be out on the road doing that again. But in the meantime, I'm just uh, hawking my book. Is that is that something you're you perform in? Or yeah. You, yeah, yeah. Jane and I uh, we we performed in every one of our plays, all twenty five. Did you? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That is that's amazing. Yeah, and then I stupid- like I said, that's got to be some sort of record. Can it? Can we? Can we look this up? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I'll ta- I'll take it. You do the Hitchcock thing <laughs> and everything by appearing in all your plays and everything. That's right. That's right. We did. We did a Hitchcock play called Wrong Window, where we made fun of Hitchcock stuff. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, but all the plays are comedies, and uh, and uh, probably five of them are musicals as well, and. Uh, and they're done all over the world. It's it's fun. I, I now in my in my off days, uh, I I travel to other countries to see my shows in foreign languages. It's kind of fun. Well, how can people find out more information about that? Go to uh, VanZantMillmore.com. All everything about the plays are there. The TV shows, uh, the the book, the couple of the films, and uh, it's it's a fun fun site. I didn't put it together, so I can say that. <laughs> so you're well, surprised awesome. when it's up there also so it's cool i am that's right it's true <laughs> what did well, they put up there cool. today <laughs> yeah yeah get that down i didn't say you could say that <laughs> <laughs> well very cool uh i yeah this has been great we appreciate your time coming on the show and then sharing these stories i can't wait to get a copy of the book and and dive into that 
Thanks for having me. This is fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break now, and we are going to be back in a moment, and we are looking at the 50th anniversary of Ringworld. Hi, this is Ashley Pauls with this week's Box Office Buzz. Well, we are in the home stretch now. We have almost made it through 2020. Yay. And as we close out the year, we do have some fun stuff to look forward to in terms of entertainment. I don't know about you, but I completely eat up cheesy Netflix holiday movies. There are a bunch of new ones, past ones. So if you're looking for something kind of silly, but also heartwarming to bring you some cheer, highly recommend scrolling through your feed. You can't miss them. They're plastered everywhere across Netflix right now. Over on Disney Plus, The Mandalorian continues to be totally killing it this season. I liked the first season, but I loved the second season. So great to see how it's tying into the larger Star Wars universe. On Disney Plus, you can also watch the live action Mulan movie. Of course, that was one of the movies that was supposed to come out in theaters this year, got postponed, then released earlier on Disney Plus, but you had to pay an extra $30 fee to watch it. Having seen Mulan now, I'm glad I didn't pay that $30. I would say it's it's okay. It's a it's a decent movie to watch, but definitely not necessarily my favorite of the Disney live action movies. I think my favorite of those are still Cinderella and Aladdin. So, we're checking out on Disney Plus, but for those of you who waited and decided not to pay $30, I think you made the right call. And speaking of streaming, Wonder Woman 1984, it feels like we've been waiting an eternity for this. It's now going to be coming out in theaters and on HBO Max around Christmas time. And I think that's a really great gesture because, of course, some people live in areas where they don't feel safe going to theaters, even with social distance procedures. And I think it's a nice way. People just really need, I think, some fun and a bit of cheer. So... Kudos to the studio for making sure as mo- as many people can see Wonder Woman 1984 as possible. Honestly, wish Disney would go ahead and do this with Black Widow. That's it for this week. Hope everyone is staying safe and healthy as we round out 2020. I'm Brian Trudeau. I'm Martha Bartlett. And this is But First, Let's Talk Nerdy. Clink. Oh, how was that? That's going to be our promo. <laughs> But first, let's talk nerdy. It's two nerd girls talking about nerdy things over a couple of drinks. What could go wrong? Part of the ESO Network. Welcome back to Earth Station One. Now it is time for the book club segment, and we are looking at the classic Ringworld by Larry Nevin. Take it away, Mikey. Which celebrates 50 years since its initial publication, and man, has it made an impact. Um, You know, it won tons of awards, uh, very influential. We'll get to all of that, as well as talked about the in details about the this first book anyway uh, that came out in 1970. And we're going to do that with our we pulled out our our old book club pal Kirby. 
there ain't no justice. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Howdy, sir. How you been? Oh, okay. Welcome to the station and welcome to Ringworld. So um, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to start off right at bat because I, you are, I would imagine this is something that you, Mike and I have never read this before. Really? So it's something that I've kind of always been curious about. In fact, when you and I, when I first asked you if you would be interested in, in joining us for a book club and talking about books, it, this was one of the books that I had in mind right away. Right, right. So, so uh, I'm glad that we're finally getting to it. Um, so let's tell us about your history with Ringworld. And were you there when it like when you, were you interested when it first came out? Or I was not a, a a science fiction fan when it first came out because I was only ten. <laughs> <laughs> hey hey i was hey. You know, okay well I, I was i was i was reading science fiction but it was uh, things like miss pickerel goes to the moon and stuff like that so. <laughs> i was only two but i was already a science fiction fan no just kidding go ahead uh but uh <laughs> by the time i in high school i um was i i wasn't in pe so i had to work in the library and I sat down, I was interested in science fiction by that point, and I sat down and went over to the card catalog, remember those things, <laughs> science fiction, and started, A, okay, Asimov, et cetera, et cetera, and just worked my way through the entire, uh, everything that was in the high school library. Wow. Uh, in starting in like 74, 75, uh, then started gathering my own stuff, I uh, I think I told you guys my first science fiction convention was in 78. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that point I was a member of the science fiction book club and I was re- reading everything. I'd get the two books every three weeks and read them both immediately. And so uh, I got Ringworld as, as one of probably one of the ones when I first joined science fiction book club, devoured it immediately. Okay, this is one that you, so you, at this point, you had already heard, it had already won all the awards. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, it yeah. had a reputation. This was list already at that point. It was a classic, uh, almost a must read for any science fiction reader, right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, by, and is this, go ahead. I was going to say, is this your first read of uh, Larry Niven's work? That Ringworld was, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Back in Back in the late 70s. Thing. Yeah, and, and, uh, and you said you devoured it. Uh, so, what did you feel after you read it? Did you did it did it uh, did it blow you away? Or oh, absolutely loved it. Absolutely lo- loved it. His world building was so fantastic, and the aliens are are unique. So, absolutely unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, by what when was that? About eighty four. I was, uh, I belonged to a role-playing game group and we even played the ring world role-playing game. Oh, wow. And the, the, uh, game master drew a ring world map and hung it from his chandelier in his dining room all the way around. And so, and he had a pointer and he could point where we were. The other thing was we said this had to be a slightly different ring world because, uh, there were five sons. <laughs> <Because of> the, 
basically chandelier. Oh, right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say, you know what, let's, since you mentioned the model and everything, let's talk about Ringworld itself. Um, I, I, basically I knew nothing going into reading this. Um, I'd heard that it was a classic, but that's about all I knew. I, I thought we're going to get into more of this, but it, this, this defied my expectations in a lot of ways uh, because there was a lot of things I, I, like I didn't see coming in this. And, and the first of which is Ringworld itself. For some reason I was expecting Ringworld to be a, like a massive, uh, satellite, like a like a a, a a completely industrial, like huge, like satellite that had a huge ring around it, you know, that um, that people lived on, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not that far off, but the concept of the the actual ring world being um, like a ring around the sun, an artificial ring around the sun where people lived. That that blew me away. That was a really unique concept. It was really unique because it was just interesting. Because you know, same. I was very similar when you know when you think of something around a sun, you think of a Dyson sphere or something mm-hmm. more than you know just like a planet that was basically a ring. And you know, you then think of you know, different, like you've seen space, you know, space movies where they have, you know, huge rocket ships where they have the, literally have the, basically the environment completely in a circle and everything, you know, all the way around a main tube or something. And you, it's just, it's just interesting to think about. And, you know, then you have this and, you know, when you think of something like, you know, ring world or something then that gets into the whole thing you start thinking about oh is there more something more nefarious to it like a death star or you know something like out of dc comics like apocalypse or something you know so it's it's just really interesting the visions it brought up and it it was beautiful how larry you know brought it to life yeah i um like I said, I was surprised. I, I kind of pictured it was like it, this was going to we were going to read a story about people who live there, like a society that lived there. I didn't I figured they were going to be humanoid, but I didn't know, you know, what the relationship was going to be with the future and Earth and all that kind of stuff. So I was very surprised when the book starts off with, you know, we've got your, you know, prototypical standard uh, you know, white dude character on earth. Right. Um, and he's your main guy. Um, I don't think we ever get anybody else's point of view. Uh, we always get, uh, we always get, uh, Louie, right. Louie, right. We're going to, we're going to say it's Louie. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever, whatever you, you want back in the, uh, seventies and eighties, science fiction fandom that I ran across, basic Midwestern science fiction fans, Chicago area said, and also the North, the Northeast Boston area would mm-hmm. say Louie. Although so, some people I know still say right. Lewis, but there are, there are clues in the book itself. Uh, there's almost like couplets uh, where like pre- is the character's name right. Prill? Well, that's the that's when the she, short when, name for it. I can't pronounce the long name for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know some some of the the things that she says come out almost poetic. 
and there's there's some rhymes that make mo- that sound better with Louie rather well, I than suppose Lewis. a simple answer would just be to get the audiobook and whatever you know <laughs> well i uh, i checked out an audiobook on youtube and it's lewis Interesting. in that one it Interesting. Graded, it graded it to me uh, and and in 89 at the world science fiction convention they a large fanish group put on a very elaborate Louis Wu birthday party. And that's how they said it. Gotcha. Louis Wu. Gotcha. Celebrating 200 years. Yeah. Cause it opens with his, with Louis starting, uh, Louis having his 200th birthday. Um, and then, uh, you know, he gets um, invited uh, to be part of this small group that's going to investigate uh, this phenomenon uh, that's like, light years away from anything um and and i want to get into all that but i uh, like it takes i think the like we don't we don't actually get to ring world until like the second act right until like a like the second like third one third of the book right oh yeah yeah about a third that's surprised me as well it was interesting because i felt like this whole book was just setting up to something bigger even and you know it it felt like it was establishing the characters and through almost, almost the full half first half of the book, it felt like these are character building. This is, you know, you're being introduced to each one of the characters who are going to be on the, the exploring party going to ring world. And, you know, a little history is, you know, basically there is a huge explosion at the center of the universe of the Milky Way universe galaxy, sorry. And, you know, in 20,000 years, uh, our section of the universe is going to be wiped out by radiation from this explosion. And so basically they're trying to figure out, you know, basically, you know, ways to get around it. So it's not last minute and it goes from there. Although it's funny because Louis does say, like, you know, knowing Earth folks the way he does, it's going to be last minute. Oh, of course. <laughs> yep. I, I I I read that this time around and went, oh, exactly. sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that yeah, that's fifty years old and still current. <laughs> yeah, because this takes place in twenty eight fifty, so it's it's quite yeah. a ways away from now. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of futuristic devices, um, some of which are still futuristic. Others are, yeah, we kind of have that now. Um, uh, but I think what drew me in right away was, and I didn't expect this cause I thought, I thought this was going to be another like hard science book, right? Uh, for some reason I had it in my head that this was going to be like mission to gravity was going to be a hard science book and you know, the characters were going to be maybe just cardboard and, and whatnot. And I was amazed at how much Larry spends on developing the, the four characters in the crew. We've got Louis, we've got uh, Nessus, who's the puppeteer, the alien that is the sort of sponsor of the whole um, adventure. Uh, we've got speaker to animals, just known as speaker, who is a, how do you pronounce that? Louis, uh, uh, a Kazin. 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 Ba- basically Kazin. a fierce cat like dude. <laughs> and, uh, and Tila Brown who, uh, yeah, we'll get to Tila. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, because yeah, she is, man, the, the people who like are complaining about in Dr. Who about the companion being like the most important person, like they would be shocked to ring ring world. <laughs> <laughs> because Tila Brown starts off as like a companion and she becomes the most important person almost in the universe. Yes. The luckiest which, girl in the universe. Which that is completely bizarre. And I want to, I want to, I definitely want to talk about that. But um, I, I, like, I, I was surprised. Um, I was really wanting to get to ring world so much so that when they stop off at, they leave earth and they stop off at the, the puppeteers planet and I was kind of like, this is like, <laughs> this is like, you know, hey, kids, we're going to Disney World. Oh, wait, we're going to stop off at the mall first. I'm like, <laughs> just walk around. I was kind of like, what are we doing on the puppeteers planet? Let's just get to Ring World, shall we? But, you know, all of that does come into play. He's building, like you said, Kirby, he's building a world. Um, and like you pointed out, Mike, this doesn't feel like, this feels like a first book in a series, even though Larry Niven had no intention at the time of making more of these. This was just going to be a one and done. Well, he kind of left it on a cliffhanger though. Yeah. yeah so, but he didn't write a follow-up for 10 years. No, which is interesting because, you know, it, it totally ended on a cliffhanger ending and it was like, wait, this can't <laughs> be where this ends. Am I missing a chapter or something? I had it like, I had to look had to look it up like on Wikipedia where they gave a full description. And it was like, nope, that's where it ends. You know, well, just, I mean, oh, it's just... the mission was done. I well, mean, I... they 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 left Ringworld at the end. So but exactly the implications of what happens, yeah, we don't we don't know. Mm-hmm. After after what happened at the nineteen seventy one Worldcon, uh he kind of felt compelled to uh, go ahead yeah. and continue it, even though it took another another nine years, I uh, he, he got to the to the Worldcon, and there were a bunch of MIT students chanting, "The Ring World is unstable. The Ring World is unstable. The Ring World yeah, is unstable." A bunch of, a bunch of guys like <laughs> checking his science, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, by the way, uh, Kirby, have you met Larry Niven? I knew Absolutely. it. I knew it. I, <laughs> bing, 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 bing. I, I have a Niven story. I have a Niven story. Uh, this was in uh, this happened at the Worldcon in 1989 uh, at uh, in Boston. Uh, everything was the Worldcon itself was at a big convention center, and we all had to be at at various hotels all over the place in that area. And there was one, one day that my wife and I were leaving our hotel room to make this enormous trek to the convention center. And we got in a, and we got to the convention center, got in an elevator and uh, Larry Niven and his wife stepped into the elevator with us and they'd been coming from wherever they were staying and we looked at him and my wife piped up and said, when are you going to invent those stepping discs? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he laughed. He loved yeah, it. That, uh, that, that is one of the really cool. And right from the beginning, that's, that's like in the first chapter, I think those stepping discs. Well, well, those are, those are, uh, our transfer. Oh, right, 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 stepping right, discs right. are on the, on the that's puppeteer true. planet. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've 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 met him many oh, times. Nice guy. 
through the year. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Now, uh, and so yeah, like I said, it, so it's very different. But when the time, by the time we finally get to Ring World, then you know, it's this. It's you know, it it seems like it's abandoned. They're not really sure what's going on. This automated system kind of shoots them down. Uh, they land. They find you know that there's little pockets of civilization here and there um, around the around the ring um, because uh, the place is in chaos. We find out later that there was now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but let me see if I get the timeline right. But there was some sort of uh, something like pierced through the ring world like floor right at one point and and yeah and threw everything out, off whack and and the the engineers or whatever couldn't save it or whatnot and uh and the whole sort of planet went to chaos well, not not exactly fist fist of god was not what caused okay. things to collapse what caused what caused things to collapse was some sort of mold that got uh, oh right, right right I forgot about the mold right, and that started clop the clops of their society because yeah, yeah. it was a huge if obviously for someone to build something like that they were a hugely advanced society maybe not as advanced as the puppeteers or even the humans and the and such but it was they were fair, very advanced and they had you know colonies on other worlds and stuff. But something happened, and like you said, the mold and society collapsed, and they basically went back to the dark ages. The, yeah. Whoever it's survived, like, kind of like, kind of like War of the Worlds, where the bacteria is the thing that kills the. Yeah the 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 fist of God event occurred in the fifteen hundred years between the uh, collapse of civilization and when uh, the exploration gotcha, team gotcha, shows up. Gotcha. Because it's it is not on the maps that that's speaker right, was that's looking right. at. I had problems. Well, yeah, and I and that's yeah. I sometimes I had problems visualizing it, and I don't know if that was my bad or, you know, the fact that Larry was just a little bit too like because he does, despite the fact that really there's a lot of more fantasy elements in this book than I expected, and um, I mean <laughs> compared to the other hard science book that we read, this is like this is like. Fant- fantasy all the way um with only little like it was only like a <laughs> yeah. little bits in here and there of, of hard science stuff and and sometimes when he talks about the hard science stuff i just kind of skim that and go okay because i i don't know like i'm not an mit grad like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna check his numbers um to me it's just like you know so i have a hard time picturing some of this stuff and like the fist of god which is this big mountain they think it's a mountain um that's on on ring world um it turns out to be just a a, a puncture a huge puncture uh, a huge meteor or something yeah. the size of the moon. and i kept thinking i'm like well isn't space like just gonna come like i just i can't figure out the logistics of why like the world is still there because it's like like i keep thinking about it as a like a a structure that like the ring, like the world part is internal and part of the, instead of like along the sides of, along the rim of the ring world, which. Right. It's not like it's a tube that's right. being you know, held <laughs> I in. I keep thinking that it's a tube. Right. <laughs> and no, it's a, and it's a ribbon. 
No, exactly. It's more like a ribbon. Yeah, it's a ribbon. Like, and it's just one side of it because they flew underneath the underside of it and they saw where asteroids had hit it and such. Yeah. And it was just interesting because you had the Fist of God, which was the mountain, and that's where a, an asteroid the size of our Earth's moon hit the ribbon, and it, the force of it created a what a thousand mile high mountain, a thousand miles, a mountain, yeah. and that it went basically into the wall of the mm. ribbon, and that's. You know, but then you also had where another asteroid had hit, and it ripped a hole in it, and that's what caused the eye, if you remember, in the book, which, you know, it looked yes. like, you know, it was like almost like a hurricane, but it looked like a human eye, and yeah. it scared the hell out of the characters in the book, because <laughs> it's like... Yeah, it's, 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 it's a vertical yeah. hurricane, basically. Right, right. Because there's yeah. no there's no wind flow and stuff and you know tides and such to on the planet to create a, hur- a true hurricane, so this is what it with the puncture in the skin of the ribbon basically where it was being sucked out was where you know she you know where it made it look like a human eye because it was like a hurricane like standing up but mm-hmm. you know just with an eye in the center, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, the Ringworld engineers t- did try to protect the Ringworld as much as they could, but they somehow had this blind spot for things coming in from underneath. I mean, they cleaned out all the asteroids and all the planets from the that system and used the material to Which make the Ringworld. Which is weird, because since it's orbiting the sun, that's where most of the debris is going to come flying from. <laughs> Right? Yeah, they they never watched Schoolhouse Rock or talked about gravity. Um, per, perhaps it's addressed in uh, the Ringworld Engineers, which oddly enough I have not read. Um, <laughs> but I I am prepared to read it now because so, I'm so you haven't read any of the you haven't read any of the sequels or follow up books. Okay, gotcha. No, gotcha. that's good. No. That, that means we're all kind of in the same place. Yeah, because so, there's what four sequels and then five prequels or something like that. Something like that. And then Something there's a like that. ton of books know. around this whole universe that he's created. Like the whole... Right. The universe is called right, the known space. The whole space. war between Speaker's uh, uh, Kazin group and, and, the, and the Earth uh, folks, humans. There's a whole like series on that. Um, and I think Louie pops up in a couple of other adventures, right? Um, so, yes. Um, so, yeah. Just so to finish up, it's different than I expected. Not as much hard science as I thought. I really was surprised by the fantasy and adventure element of it. Surprised by the character development. Um, I was surprised by how much sex is in this book. <laughs> a lot of sex. <laughs> a lot of sex. Like white man fantasy sex. Like it's just like, it's like, it's, yeah. it's all over this book. And I was also surprised that it's not apocalyptic. Like it, it, it takes place on earth in 2850 and certain things, yes, are not cool that there's been some down, there's been some stuff that's happened, but it's not a dystopian future. Like it's not exactly Star Trek, but it's not, but it still seems to be a, a, a forward moving society for that we have on earth and the humans, which I kind of like, I dig that. Um, uh, Ah, but did you, did you realize that the, uh, the Ringworld universe and the Star Trek universe have 
come together. No, tell us how that do tell <laughs> the the animated series has Kazin. Really, I've seen the animated series pretty recently, yes. but I can't. Yeah, I knew that there was a like a um like a cat like some cat like creatures, but I wow, that's a Kazin. Wow. <laughs> And that was only a few years after the after the hmm. book. I guess uh, Larry didn't copyright that or something. <laughs> oh, he 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 gave oh, he really? gave them permission. It's it's interesting because speaker to animals. I always pictured him. I don't know if either of you've read uh, Omega Men by Keith Griffin in the DC mm-hmm. Comics. Um, it was a no. spinoff of Teen Titans, and basically they have a character named Tigor, and. He basically is exactly how I picture speaker to look, mm. you know, the the cat person and everything. So if, you know, for me, that's what I look like, especially with the orange fur and getting it all burnt off multiple times. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He goes through, he goes through a lot. Um, they yes. all kind of do. Um, I think the most intriguing character for me was uh, Nessus. Uh, yes, because Nessus is not humanoid at all. Um, and I must admit, I have a hard time. I had to like look online to see how uh, some artists have interpreted it because I had a hard time picturing kind of what he looks like. Um, he's got two heads. Um, they're not like they're not. It's not like Zaphod Beeblebrock, so he's not humanoid in any way. So it's just like. <laughs> Uh, these two like stalks, right? Yeah, they're, they're think think yeah, of a sock yeah, puppet. Exactly. I think I think the puppeteer is a, like the human's name for that race, right? Not their own, right? Although yes. we find out yes. later that it has implications that even the humans didn't didn't determine, right? Because the this race has an agenda, and and they are manipulative as hell. Um, but I love the fact that the race is cowardly. Like every time something comes up, he like he 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 goes into a ball. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I love the fact that his gun, uh, instead of like stunning people or killing people, like just hits their pleasure center <laughs> and and, yes. and disables them because they're just in so much orgasmic pleasure that they can't like they can't do it, they can't function. I'm like, my goodness, this is this is this is a fun race, you know. Oh, yeah. I kind of pictured him like an offshoot of Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob a little bit. I don't know. Again, you probably haven't seen. So, you know, with the, two, with the two eye stalks yeah, and, the, and everything. But his his eyes are also his hands. No, his mouth. Mouths. Right. Are their hands, which is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he has a mane of long brown hair. And you know, it's just it's just what an odd looking character. And and hoof feet that can apparently have quite a kick. Three of them. Yeah. He's a tripod. But the 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 rear the rear one uh will kick back like a, a right. mule. And it's 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 kind of built in with their cowardiceness. They would turn away from enemies and then kick. Mm-hmm. He he's he, the race is the most advanced race of them of uh, of the ones we meet. Well, apart from the uh, people who did Ring World, but we never meet them. Um, so he's he's kind of the smartest one 
of them of the group and yet it does seem like you know louis is is like leader and i mean it's because he's the main guy right he's he's the guy that comes up with the plan to get out and well i feel like a lot of times in this book the leadership changes you know depending on the situation because there's times when you know speaker feels like he's in charge then there's other times that you also you know you the only one who never ever felt like in charge was tila yeah and yet and yet her very existence basically made things happen that's a that's a great segue so yeah let's get to tila because she comes across as just like a ditzy blonde bimbo that that you know only is is coming along because you know she loves uh she's in love with Louie. Um uh, and Louis is going to can't say no to her cuz he wants to have sex on the way. Um so so that's <laughs> why she comes along. Really? Um yeah, I thought she was I thought she was she was selected because of her luck. Because of the genetics. That she was selected by the puppeteers. She, she but, was. But the reason that yeah. Louis wanted her to come on was because he oh, couldn't say yeah, no to her but, is because he wanted to have sex all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, yes, that's what that was Louis. <laughs> thinking. She didn't necessarily yeah. she, she didn't necessarily want to go along. At, right. At right. First. He tried. And he at one point was try, in the beginning was trying to convince her not to come because it was such a dangerous mission. Right. And she's never been on or off of Earth at that point. Well, she never even. And she's she never, never been hurt. Um, so yeah, so we find out more and more about Tila as we get as the adventure goes, and this really threw me. I did not see this coming at all. Um, but to find out, yes, she was selected because of this huge, like manipulation thing that the puppeteers are doing to people on Earth, where they're getting people to selectively breed. To try to figure, to try to find the most luckiest individuals, the ones that, because they feel like I guess luck is a, is something like you can, um, like a, a power, uh, something that can be defined, uh, almost that there's a science to it, right? Yes. No, very much so, and that was really interesting because you find out like halfway through the book that you know basically. The puppeteers have been manipulating both humanity, but also the Kazin race also to make, yeah, but manipulating them, not that they won't be as an aggressive of a species, because by this time the story happens, the Kazin and humanity have gone to war four different times, and each time humanity has won and beaten them back. Because basically the Kazin was a warrior race that enslaved whatever species they they beat or conquered. And humanity stood up to him each time. And one of the, the first time they beat him, though, is because basically the puppeteers helped steer. Yeah, they manipulated you know, it. They manipulated it that they would have faster than light drives. Yeah. You know, and so it's just it was just really interesting. So the whole thing, though, the whole mission and everything warrants, and then it all becomes like, okay, what can we get away with? What can we do to either um, take advantage of Tila's luck or to, 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 to fight against it? Um, at one point, they think she's, they, they declare her dead. 
And I'm like, you guys know better than this. Like, I know better than this. She's not dead. Like, unless there's a body, right? They find her, they find her speeder, her speeder bike thing, but they just assume that she's dead and that her luck ran out. But it's like, no, that, why would you think that? She's getting yeah, she better. Got better. She got better. She got better and she found a, a hero stud. Like right out right out of oh, a Oh yeah. That that's the one character that I, I really have. Right out of a with. fantasy, like <laughs> like right after uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This. When they said it wrapped in skins, I was like, Oh, she found Conan. Great. <laughs> yeah, she did. <laughs> that's exactly who she found. She found He Man. Uh <laughs> yeah, that's he he's I think uh He's seeker, isn't yeah, he? Seeker. Yeah, seeker. That's what. Yeah, and he's. I think the just the cop out, cop out at the end. That I think he yeah, ran out of yeah. ideas. Well, I mean, it's weird because they both sort of end up with like she gets this perfect like you know hunk of a dude, and and Louis like meanwhile encounters this like alien sex expert like. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like you know the 200 man wasn't already lucky enough getting getting it from a 20 year old now he's getting it from this like woman that has like pleasures beyond any human's wildest dreams exactly uh, she's like a human uh pleasure gun uh i can't remember what the that it, what is it called that uh that they used to that the puppeteers yeah the task yeah task so so I and you know what? To be honest with you, this whole mix of everything and stuff I didn't expect and all that kind of stuff, I I enjoyed it while I was reading it. I didn't want to uh-huh. put it down. I kept it kept me engaged. I will agree with you guys, especially Mike, where the ending it just kind of ends and you're like, um, is this the end? Like, <laughs> did I miss something? Um, but I, you know, thinking about it, I'm not sure. I'm really. I have like a strong desire to read more. Um, really? I don't know. Yeah. Where are you guys at? Eventually I'd like to read at least the next one just to see if it picks up from here. Cause you know, part of the deal to make uh speaker and Louie go with the puppeteers is the promise of a ship that can travel, you know, those you know light years in minutes compared to weeks and you know and they promised you know to give it to each race and of course speaker tried to steal it right at the very beginning <laughs> yeah and it's just like and you know for because he was trying it's all you know it's interesting speaker's race reminded me a lot of klingons you know the honor oh right. and, yeah. and everything and warrior you know, race warrior race the honor system that you know they're the he's like eight feet tall orange fur all you know and you could picture that as a klingon very easily and it was just Mm -hmm. it was just very interesting to see and what does he do he at the very big when he first get to the puppeteer's planet he tries to steal the ship for his people and that's without honor right there and you know it was just it was just really interesting to see that he was doing that and it was just it but i felt like from that point on though his character grew so much and everything you know it matured almost because he was supposed to be a youngling mm. 
he had any, he didn't, they called him speaker to animals because he didn't have a name yet. It does, it does sound like the next book, Ring World Engineers, has uh, all of the, the characters return, except maybe I don't see uh, uh, Nessus's name listed um, on the, on the Wikipedia for the sequel. So I don't know if he's, cause he, he goes through a lot. <laughs> oh, at the very end, especially. <laughs> I believe that the main puppeteer is uh, in the, um, don't, don't, I'm not exactly sure, but I think the main puppeteer in Ringworld Engineers may be the Heimdall. Yeah, I think gotcha. that's right. Right, which we find out that's that's the reason why the the this particular puppeteer Nessus is doing the mission is because what does he get out of it? He gets out a mate for life. So it comes, you know, it's all about the sex in this book. <laughs> oh, completely. Once again, <laughs> well, if you think about it, you know, you know, he basically is, you know, Nessus is considered insane by his people. And, you know, he basically is an outcast. And, you know, and so basically they say that's why he was not allowed to mate because they didn't want him to reproduce. And so, and, and you know, that's, you know, he lived up it to his end of the bargain and got, you know, basically the Kazin and the human, the two humans, to their home world for this mission. And he said, you know, he went to them and said, Hey, I lived up to my part of the bargain. Let me have sex pretty much. Let me have a mate. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, th that's the thing about their society because they need creatures to do these missions. They need members of their society, to, but when they, but because they determined to do this, they're instantly cast as mad and crazy for doing it. So mm -hmm. they're they're easy, they're yeah. they're automatically dismissed. <laughs> yeah, they they sent a human to the to the middle of the galaxy to find out about the explosion. Right. <laughs> they wouldn't do it because they, they weren't going to go. They're they're cowards. Uh, well, Nessus himself though was in charge of the whole project to manipulate the birthright yeah. lotteries. He's very old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we don't, I don't know. Do we know how old he is? Gotcha. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I said, I was entertained. Um, I don't know if there's enough here for me to really like get excited about a follow-up though. I, I have to be honest with you. So, um, I mean, I, I, I liked what I read though. So I know that there's been talks for the last 50 years about adapting this, into a movie, into a series, blah, blah, blah. They always announce it, but it series. never happens. Uh, I think even, I think even a couple of years ago, Amazon said, we're doing the series. And, you know, again, it's yes. not, nothing's happening. So um, I, I can trailers. understand. Is there? <laughs> There's trailers, but they're basically just uh, flying gotcha. over the ring world. I'd like to see how they handle the, what a puppeteer looks like, what right, a Kazin looks right. like. Well, you could certainly understand going in why certainly until recently, this would have been a very difficult thing to um, adapt. You know, they'd have to make decisions like they'd have to, you know, how are they going to, you know, obviously, you know, the best way to do the puppeteer would be to have a puppet. Like it just makes sense. Right. Um, 
So I could definitely see, you know, the Henson folks getting involved in putting something together. That would be pretty fun, I think. Um, but um, certainly the first book, uh, I think if you had that as a movie or something, would the way it ends would be not very satisfying. You'd have to kind of do something else, I think. They'd probably continue it into the Ringworld. Yeah, yeah. I think it would make a better series. But yeah, I believe the idea was that yeah, it's yeah. going to be a series. But there, there hasn't been any word for. And there's about this a year huge contrast, which might be kind of interesting. You'd have this huge contrast between this science fiction, hard science, uh, you know, um, all these technological wonders, and then you'd have these like fantasy, like you know, tropes of like Conan and 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 various other uh you know fantasy elements of princes and, and and villages and villagers and and gods and and all that kind of thing you also like have you, floating castles you have you yeah, know. exactly right you've got this sort of weird mix <laughs> yeah. of fantasy and science fiction here mm-hmm. oh Which exactly could, it could work really well and done right yeah yeah, exactly. We don't even know where it went in the other books. It could have even gone poof, blowing our minds even further, you know? So it's true. It's true. Especially with, you know, with him to have 10 years to, to develop uh, a second book. I mean, there must have been, yeah, I, I must admit that I am slightly curious because the second book would probably be like, you know, there's a lot more thought put into it, really, you know? Of course. No, I definitely would love to see, you know, a series about this. I don't know right now if I have the time to put the energy to put into <laughs> the sequels, you know, but eventually maybe I would recommend this to somebody. Well, we, we have another book to read. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's just it. Like, you know, I mean, certainly if I, you know, had all the time in the world, you know, there's, there's an, if the pandemic gets worse, you know, maybe. Um, but, uh, I, I think, yeah, I think I'll, I'll be curious, Kirby, if you're going to follow up and read ring world engineers and we could talk after that, uh, <laughs> about, I'll let you know. Yes. About I, whether or not that's worth it. I'm definitely going to, I'm definitely okay. going to read it. Um, cause you've had it for a long time. <laughs> and you do become attached to these characters through the book. Yeah. And everything. It's not like, oh, I'm glad that person died or that person's no longer there or that person went off with a Conan or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the oddest, that's the oddest part of it, except that's, it, it does make sense because that's yeah. her luck. She, it's to take her, that is what luck decided was best for Taylor yeah, Brown. Pretty much. But exactly. it's also so like I mean it's, it it raises this whole thing about you know luck and fate and whether there's like these things can be predetermined and all that kind of stuff. I mean it, it, there's a lot there's a lot that Ringworld has that you can talk about, which I suppose is like one of the best things about it, right? It's entertaining and there's a lot to talk about. And and yeah, I'm sure over the last fifty years there's been a lot more in-depth discussions than we're, we're attempting here, but so where no. would people, where, where would the best place to go for people to find out more and talk about it more Kirby? There must be, there must be, there must be huge <laughs> like communities, right? Still. 
I get. I, I guess I don't know. You're not. You're not just, part of any folks, of those communities anymore. Folks, just type in Ringworld online. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Type Ringworld online. And is it isn't Halo supposed to be sort of on yes, a Ringworld? Halo has uh, definitely been inspired by Ringworld um, in a few ways. I, I've heard that uh, there's elements of the novels that kind of appear in some of the games. Um, I don't know specifically because I I don't play Halo, but uh, from what I understand, that that's a huge influence on Halo. Um, that's that's why it's a it's Halo. It's it's a yeah, ring around a sun. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and yeah, I'm like I said, I'm really glad that we we read it, and um, um, I, I I could check that off the the list. <laughs> but um, what are your what are your final thoughts, Mike? Final thoughts is I enjoyed it. The, it it opened my mind to a lot of new possibilities that I hadn't thought of for fantasy, science fiction, tying in together. And because it just wasn't pure sci-fi, there was a lot of fantasy into this. And Larry goes into so much detail on the characters, on the surroundings, on the environments. It's it's just amazing the research he must have done into this. I would definitely recommend somebody pick this up and, you know, read it if you haven't before. Yeah, I don't think it feels terribly dated. I mean, certainly some of the relationships yeah. and the treatment of women and that kind of stuff, you know, is a little dated now. Um, but, but, I mean, the technology um that the world that he creates in 2850 is still something that hopefully we can aspire to um although i don't want to be manipulated by puppeteers <laughs> i i don't think uh i don't think my uh genetics would fare very well in the whole luck lottery system <laughs> yeah. that world though you can you can tell that no one could imagine the internet because there, there are there are some aspects of living in that world pre from someone who couldn't think yes. of the internet yeah. at the time. That, or cell phones. It's just odd, but yeah, yeah, you 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 get that with a lot of uh, old science fiction. You go, why don't they just <laughs> <laughs> bring yeah. up their cell phone? Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in that period, in time period, you can just like hop, skip and transport someplace rather than, you know, you don't, it's, it's as easy as a call, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's yeah. pretty cool. So any last uh, thoughts on, on Ringworld from you, Kirby? Uh, yeah, it was really nice to reread it uh, since I've got all these memories uh, dealing with things around it, like playing Ringworld and uh, as a role-playing game. Uh, and let me get back to what happened in 1989 at NorEastCon, the World Science Fiction Convention. They had this gigantic party, and I will, I promise, I'm going to scan the pictures and uh, post them someplace. It was a, you had to get uh, a wristband to get in. It, they had uh, drinks and everything. It was free. It, I think it cost $17,000 for the people to put this thing on, but it was themed. There was a, uh, a Kazinti room. There was a puppeteer room. Uh, there was an Alice in Wonderland room because that was the theme of this world science fiction convention, but you had this giant birthday cake. You had a 
character dressed as Louis in the blue robe. Uh, you had stuffed puppeteers. You, some people made puppeteers. It was just an incredible party that now, however many years later, was that 31 mm-hmm. years, I still have very fond memories of that party. And, uh, and oddly, there aren't that many pictures from that party Ooh, online. Mysterious. I see. I seem to have. I seem to have some one of the few collections wow. that I know of. So I'm. I'm going to be uh, posting those on uh, fanact.org. Cool. Most likely. Uh, but yeah, I just I I I've, I've love Niven's writing. I'm surprised that I never got around to reading Ringworld Engineers. Because uh, I've read most of his other stuff, it just kind of got put to one side. But I, I, it's it's great. Uh, yeah, um, I like I said, I don't regret reading it at all. I, I think it was a, a pretty amazing read, and I definitely, like Mike, encourage people to to check it out. So um, it is a classic for a reason. I think it still holds up. So yes. well, very cool. Well, Kirby, thanks for joining. Thanks for joining our Ringworld party. <laughs> And uh, and we will be right back uh, to close out the show. Hey, everybody. Michelle here with an iconic rock talk show moment. And just like the department in Rolling Stone magazine, random notes, just some random things I have learned about the music industry recently. Simon LeBon is confirming that Duran Duran is going to play some new music when they headline the rescheduled British Summertime Festival set for next July 11th in London. Fingers crossed. Um, Niall Rogers and Sheik and Grace Jones are uh, set to be the opening acts, or as they say in the UK, the support acts for that. Um, he also said he's enjoying being in quarantine with his wife, Yasmin, their daughters, and their grandchildren. And my mind is just blown thinking about Simon LeBon as a grandfather. Uh, in case you missed it, uh, Eddie Vedder and his wife Jill did a digital fundraiser um, back in the middle of November called Venture into Cures. It's for their nonprofit Epidermolysis Beloso Research Partnership. Eddie did uh, two new solo songs for that, Matter of Time and Say Hi. There are videos for both songs that you can watch, YouTube, Vimeo, wherever you watch videos. And you can still order a limited edition 7-inch of these songs, along with a limited edition event poster at PearlJam.com. All the proceeds, of course, benefit EBRP. Uh, Tori Amos has put out her first uh, new solo material since uh, her album Native Invader that came out three years ago. It's her second uh, Christmas um, record. Uh, It's a four-song EP. Uh, It includes a lead single called Better Angels. Uh, You can find that music on Apple Music or Spotify. And new Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Trent Reznor, along with Atticus Ross, has released the original score for... The new David Fincher um, movie, Mank, about Citizen Kane co-writer Herman Mankiewicz. Um, And they exclusively used period authentic instruments from the 40s when they did all the songs. They are also scoring um, the Pixar film Soul, which was set to come out in June in theaters. It's now set to um, premiere on Disney Plus on Christmas Day. Uh, Trent is also reportedly working on some music for a new Nine Inch Nails album, so he is a busy guy. 
This has been the Iconic Rock Talk Show moment. The blog is iconicrocktalkshow.wordpress.com and I also have an Iconic Rock Talk Show blog at esonetwork.com. That's all the music news for now and we will catch you next time. Everyone these days could use a little support and your friends at the ESO Network are no different with the ESO Network Patreon. The cool thing is, is when you help support us, it's you who will benefit. With four tiers starting for as little as 25 cents a week, you can listen to some of your favorite network podcasts early, hear exclusive content, maybe get some ESO swag, or even possibly take a shot at the geek seat. All you need to do is sign up at patreon.com backslash ESO Network. Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about some fun holiday specials to watch during the season. So no matter what you celebrate during this time of the year, here are a few fun specials to watch with a winter feel to them. First, we're going to talk about how fun and silly the Lego Star Wars holiday special is. It's on Disney+. Plus. We see Ray and Finn and the gang decorating for Life Day, a celebration that the Wookiees have every year, and they're inviting Chewbacca's family to it. Ray goes off on a mission to try and make it so she is a better teacher to Finn in the Jedi ways, and then craziness ensues from there. This special is silly, fun, and it's what you would expect from a Lego special. If you like specials like Frosty the Snowman, Disney sing-alongs and such, Freeform will be playing those all month long. They also have the schedule up on their webpage if you're trying to find something specific. Or just tune into their channel for a surprise of what they have playing at that time. And many of these will also be on Hulu to watch whenever you want. A Charlie Brown Christmas special will be playing on PBS and Apple TV. And this is always a great classic to watch at this time of the year. And who does not love seeing the Peanuts characters? It doesn't matter how many times I watch this, I always love it. And after all of the fuss earlier when Apple TV was going to make it exclusive to them, I'm glad PBS is showing it. Grinch the Musical, a live-action video recording of the Grinch musical, will be on Hulu to watch. Since many of us who love going out to see theater and musical theater haven't been able to do that this year, it's great that more are being put on TV and streaming services for us to watch for those of us that really miss that live-action feel. During a year where so many of us have missed out on so much, it's nice to have some fun stuff to watch to bring our spirits up during the time of year that should be happy. So yeah, thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Of course, Kirby, thank you so, so much, my friend. Thanks for having me again. It's a lot of fun. It was interesting because, like, you know, when Mike brought up that this was the 50th anniversary of this book, I was just like, really? Are you sure? You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, wow. Yeah, this is just dating us You're even more. Making me feel so. old. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anything you want to promote, my friend? Uh, yeah, I can uh, be found on the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast, 20MB. Uh, and uh, we are Doctor Who podcast is We've been going through all of Doctor Who since the beginning. And as of last week, I've now seen every single classic story, or as much as you can, 
except for uh, Wheel in Space because I was sick that week and forgot to watch it. Oh. <laughs> but and so we are continuing uh, with the TV movie next week, and, uh, and then, then we're going into the and then we're moving to the new new series. What happens when you guys get to the end? Are you going to start Torchwood in or anything? I or? have no idea. I don't think we've thought of that of, about that. Oh, I've always wondered about that when you're like doing like a, a set TV show. You know, what are you going to get into? Are you you know because you guys still have a ton you could get into after the TV show and everything. So it'll be very po- interesting. Possibly a big finish. That's what I'm thinking. Because Go I, all the big finishes. I have not heard that many big finish. I like them, but just fitting them into my schedule is difficult. Oh, exactly. Nope, I could totally understand that. Well, thank you, my friend, for being here tonight. Thanks. And Mr. Mike, we made it to through another one. We did, and as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about? Uh, I do. I um, uh, I enjoyed... Um, I don't... You know, I've seen... A few movies uh, this year, new movies, and most of which, uh, most of the ones I've seen have been on on Netflix or some sort of streaming service, of course. Um, but um, they re- Netflix released a new one uh, last week called Mank, which is uh, a biographical drama about Herman J. Mankiewicz and the writing mm. of um, Citizen Kane. Um, it's directed by, I think, written and directed by um, David Fincher. Um, and, uh, it's not now, you know, I know enough about the making of Susan Kane to know that this is not like a realistic, like authentic depiction of how this was written, but, um, it stars, uh, Gary Oldman as Herman J. Mankiewicz. And it's just a tour de force performance by him as always, but it's like, one of the best things I've seen him in a while, you know, he plays this writer that kind of a Hollywood writer that kind of, you know, is the smartest guy in the room, too smart for his own good. A lot of times uh, going up against the, the, the Hollywood machine. And uh, it, it really, and, and the, the thing that really sells me, it's filmed in black and white, which is cool. Ooh. Nice touch. Um, but the real thing that really sells me is that the guy they've got playing, um, uh, Orson Welles, Tom Burke is amazing. Like I, I, you couldn't ask for a better, like his voice just rings true. I mean, I know Orson Welles is a kind of a, uh, uh, easy one to imitate for folks, but, um, it's just like, it's just, it's like, it's like, he's, 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 it's like Orson Welles is back with us. So, um, it's a fun movie. Like you don't take it too seriously, but it is a, it is a fun movie. And, uh, I, uh, I guess it was had a limited theatrical release, so maybe it's going to try for some awards. But um, you can see it for free on Netflix, and I recommend doing so. That is awesome. Very cool. Um, Citizen Kane is such an amazing, legendary movie. Mm-hmm. And then just to see information about the making of it, I'm sure it's awesome. So definitely we'll check that out. So it could be added to my list. And another TV show that you should add to your list is a show that Judy and I have been watching. We got into it a little bit late, but season two of the series just started on HBO Max. It's called His Dark Materials. Oh, yes. It's taken from the series of the same name based. Also, it's a lot of people know it as the Golden Compass. And it is an amazing, amazing series. Uh, 
It's, it's this version is so much better than the Golden Compass movie, though. Oh, the movie was horrible. The movie yeah. was horrible. Um, it came out a couple of years ago with Daniel Craig. I think he's the only one I even was remembered that was in it. And uh, basically, this is very faithful to the books and is amazing. They just started series two about um, three weeks ago. And I think episode four is premiering tonight. And they're doing it weekly. So... You definitely should check it out. Uh, great, great cast. Amazing cast on this. And it is dark, but it is still, oh, yeah. it, it is very alternate worlds uh, meeting our world, meeting another world. It's just, it's just awesome. And it, it is a great, great storyline. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone because you have to see it to understand it and um it starts very slow make it through the first episode and it really starts taking off from there and you just you just go go where are they going with this and the performances and the characters you're going to start like going this was intense like we just watched the third episode which is was the newest one before tonight and we were just like after we watch it we were just like oh, i think i need a cigarette to, to after that <laughs> it was just it was that that intense or a shot of whiskey or something it's, the books it's, are incredible the books mm -hmm. are absolutely incredible so. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely would recommend it, and you know, I'll have a link to it up on our show notes if you want to check it out. And it's HBO Max, and or I think it's also regular HBO, if I remember correctly. And so, but definitely check it out, and you know, it's a, it's a great series. So, speaking of great things to talk about. Next week, we are going to be back and we are going to be talking all about the world of Hanna-Barbera. That's right, folks. You know, going from, you know, outer space to the, you know, I don't want to say the funny pages because Hanna-Barbera <laughs> was more on the, on TV and it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about the history of Hanna-Barbera, our favorites, and so many characters that are mainstays now that you know came out of the minds of some amazing people it's gonna be a lot of fun to talk about thanks for listening to the earth station one podcast we are powered by nsc you can find them at www.nsclivetv.com remember you can find earth station one wherever fine podcasts are found including now ready for this pandora and amazon music so all you have to do is talk to your favorite media device and go hey play the earth station one podcast and you know what you can find us that way it's pretty awesome and tell all your friends about us yes we're not too proud we, this is what we survive on we survive on word of mouth and the more people tell about earth station one and you are doing it then thank you but you know we're going to be, you know, one of those people, we need more because we do. It's always just keep, don't get comfortable. Keep on telling people about us. You know, I know people are enjoying the shows and hopefully you've enjoyed this one. This was an amazing book we talked about today. And, you know, we're going to, we got a lot of great things planned for you. And now, you know, especially with a lot of these movies starting to be streamed instead of, you know, having to go to the movie theaters for it. We got a lot of stuff in ahead of us for 2021 to talk about.
On behalf of myself, Mike Faber, Mr. Mike Gordon, and of course, Kirby Bartlett Sloan, thanks again for listening. We will see you here next time on the Air Station One podcast. Stay safe, hug your loved ones, and be peaceful to each other. The holidays are coming up. Let's have some, you know, cooperation or, you know, handshakes and just be nice to your neighbor. That's what the holiday season is supposed to be about, not conflict and all this garbage that's going on. All right. That's me getting on my soapbox again. I'm (laughs) hopping off. Peace. We're out of here. Cheers. We'll see you next week. Bye. And we're done. Boom. You've been listening to the Air Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Air Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station 1 podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.